Diversity is so much more than gender and ethnicity, but how do we account for the invisible forces of diversity, especially when pushed for metrics on it? My guest this week has been sharing her leadership insights on the types of neurodiversity that are needed to create successful organizations and pointing leaders to the fact of neurodiversity and that it is an umbrella term used to describe how each person creates their own unique perception of reality. I'm Julia Repholtz. Welcome to Generative Leaders. Well, Sally, it's so great to have you here. Um, and I, I, I love the fact that your, your name is Sally Bridgeland, because I feel that that is your role in life is bridging different lands um, and uh, living up to your name so brilliantly. But it'd be great to start with a little bit about you um, so the, the listeners can understand um, where you're coming from and some of your perspectives. And, uh, and then we can you know, dive into some of the things that you've learned about generative leadership. Certainly, yeah. And I, I think I married the right man. I wasn't born a Bridgeland, but I've... Uh, learned how important it is in my life in so many ways. Um, yeah, so uh, I was born a girl good at maths um, in uh, sunny Oxfordshire in a little school where my, I was making my, uh, my teacher's life hell by doing loads of extra maths homework um, and had a wonderful headmaster who told my parents it was worth sending me to a school where it was good, where it was okay for girls to be good at maths. And throughout my life, I found myself as being what I describe as a round peg in a square hole. You know, I'm a, I'm a girl that's good at maths. I, I was an environmentalist. I ended up working for BP. I'm an actuary that's passionate about communication. I'm in the Royal Air Force, even though I hate flying in very small planes. Uh, and that, that sort of habitually uncomfortable and then sort of being comfortable being uncomfortable it is is almost my my special superpower, uh, and gives me that that sort of off the scale independence and being being comfortable thinking slightly different uh, differently about things. But these days, I'm a um, I've got a portfolio of non executive roles on financial services companies. So I, I chair an asset manager, and uh, I'm on the board of three insurers. But I'm also really passionate about maths education, and I do that in a traditional way. It's on the advisory committee at the Royal Society, um, but also I chair the strategic advisory board for the Centre of Maths Cognition at uh, Loughborough University, which is all about doing research into how we really learn maths and uh, it, you know improving that that quality of thinking. Um, because getting confident in maths, I think, is a is a real empower for, for so many for so many people and potentially um, a, a way of leveling up and helping people move into into different areas one of the things I'm really passionate about is that diversity of thinking and just because you don't fit in the right mold you're not the square peg in the square hole um, that actually that doesn't mean that you can't do it um, and uh, things that build people's confidence and make them feel welcome and included are, are really, really important in that. There's so many things in what you just said that I'd love to <laughs> ask you about, um, but I think we'd probably be here all day. But I, I'd love to ask you about, you know, that that journey that you've been on about 
sort of feeling uncomfortable and getting comfortable in the uncomfortable and how you sort of help other people now do that. So if I look at, uh, uh, and I was asked to draw recently a, a, a graph of my motivation over time and, and the things that have demotivated you and motivated you. And I think I've been at an all-time high now. You know, I, I really enjoy what I'm doing, but I wouldn't have got here and been here. I wouldn't have had the skills I had unless I'd taken an untrodden path. And that, that really started probably about... Like like most of us, it, 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 seven years into a, a role, so I trained as an actuarial um, consultant, qualified as an actuary, and then you find yourself kind of doing the same job that you were doing three years ago because actuarial work has a bit of a three-year cycle. And you thought, where's this going? And uh, I was in a bit of a dead man's shoes kind of situation. So I thought, well, what, do I, what am I passionate about? What am I good at? What will they carry on paying me for? This is the sort of Jim Collins hedgehog concept, although I didn't know it at the time. Uh, and I thought, well, I'm, I'm interested in technology and how we use this. This was sort of mid-1990s. And I say, um, I can make more money for the firm by making us more efficient than I can by going out there, winning a big client and that kind of stuff. And given that nobody else is doing this, how about I do this? And to a certain extent, it was it was career limiting and wasn't the right, wasn't the traditional path. But for me, it was much more rewarding and actually was was more enjoyable at the time. And then has also meant that I've got different skills later on. So it took its time to come through. But in terms of my leadership journey, what I would encourage people to do is do things that you really enjoy doing that, that are really playing to your skills. Uh, at school, we tend to be encouraged to be good at everything, polymaths and all that sort of stuff. But there will still be things that you enjoy doing more. And if you can play to those, that's where you can really do some, some excellent work and, and make a difference. This podcast is all about generating different results for society, for future generations. What have you seen about that in you know, the multitude of different uh, arenas that you operate within? I think the thing that, that, um, that worries me most, if I can start with worrying, I'm not a great warrior, is, is the lack of imagination and the lack of really thinking five, 10 years out. And for, for good ideas to have their time, you have to have that conviction for quite a long time and to be able to choose the moment. So kind of what I've learned is that, you know, just because an idea is completely obvious to me and incredibly logical, doesn't mean that it's gonna happen right now because of all the different factors that, that need to come into that. Uh, and I think that, that, that the, the worry stems from having a very sort of one-year annual cycle, business plan, remuneration, all of those kinds of metrics, which can mean that actually the short-term, you know, a series of short-terms does not add up to the long-term direction because you've, you've carried on moving steps in a particular way without actually thinking about 
what you could have done and, and you're focusing much more on avoiding doing bad stuff rather than what the good stuff, what that kind of North Star might be. And it just, so, I mean, the phrase responsible investment was one that we invented for competition run in the FT in 2003. That's 20 years ago. It takes a long time for something difficult to become mainstream when there are so many reasons why it can get shoved to the bottom of the agenda. And that, I think, is is one of the big challenges, is, is our kind of piecemeal, short-term way of thinking about businesses rather than saying, actually, how could life be different in five years, ten years' time? And what can we do about it to make sure not only that the bad stuff is avoided, but the good stuff happens? And do you think that's a factor of people being limited by a certain set of boundaries or conditions that, you know, limit their thinking um, and sort of the fear that they won't be able to influence other people to make long-term change? I think long-term is just more difficult. And we're also taught, I think, much as I benefited hugely from the education system in that, you know, as a girl, SWAT, passed my exams, got straight A's, first class degree, na na na. Life isn't like that. There's no syllabus. There's no right answer. Um, and if you're trained and you believe that success is scoring these points and, and playing this game in particular moves, actually you're deluding yourself because you're missing the impact that not only you, but the broader piece has, uh, you know, the company or the organization that you work with could have. So an example of the square peg round hole moment is when I was thinking about joining BP and I asked one of the family's uh, great mentors what he thought about me as a, a cycle riding environmentalist joining BP. And he said, well, I'll let you into a secret. My first job was within the, Ang- the Anglo-Iranian Oil Company, which is one of the, the predecessor organizations for BP. And he said, and there's only so much you can do by being one family, not having a car. If you're in a big organization and understand how that works, how they think about things and what you can do with 20 billion pounds of pension fund assets and think about it in that perspective, how much greater your influence could be. Mm. And he sort of turned it around and sort of said, well, are you up for it? Are you up to it? So that's the difference. It's not just, it's thinking about what you could do rather than almost what success looks like against particular metrics. And I think, our, sadly, our education system suits and, and our idea of success will select people who are good at playing that particular game and scoring those particular points that then instills a bit of culture in business that that's what success looks like. Mm. It's hitting that number at the end yeah. of the quarter, at the end of the year, it's not... Yeah, beyond that. And it also might mean that those who are less successful academically, it's kind of a bit divisive in thinking that, well, actually, it's not about that. It's not about the money. It's not about the financial results. But it almost divides the population into two um, and, and pits commerce against philanthropy in a way that increasingly I'm seeing is being mushed together a bit more. You know, charities have to be more commercial. Businesses have to be more conscious of the impact that they're making. 
And so you're having to blend those two points of view. And that's hard. And I know that you've got this great way of sort of, you know, thinking about these two sort of parts of society <laughs> um, and how they come together and how you can bridge that. I'd love, I'd love to, uh, you to sort of talk about a little bit about these different clubs that you come to. Yeah. See. Um, so, so I think, um, and fundamentally, that's uh, the criticism there is that we've got businesses become too chess club. But let's let's rewind to the where did this come from? This this came from um, uh, a guy called Len who coaches the leadership team in in the U.S. for Impacts, which is an organization that I chair that is all about investing in the transition to a sustainable economy. So it's it's quite forward thinking and has been very high growth recently. And Len had come over and had met members of our um, executive team and was reporting back to myself and the chief executive. And he said, hey, yeah, Sally, I've met members of your chess club and members of your drama club. And I, you know, inside burst out laughing because I thought, I know exactly who you're talking about. Or the, the stereotypes, the characterizations of people but I'm probably a bit more drama club in, in thinking about that. So the characterizations, the way that, that I have um, would then almost translate the idea into a chess club way of thinking of things, being yeah. analytical, would be drama club are the ones who know what happily ever after looks like. They've got the story. They gather together the characters for the plot. They set the scene. They're much better at the describing the big picture, describing the vision, um, and chess club are the ones who are much better at learning the particular moves, um, deciding what, again, what winning the game looks like uh, and doing all those moves so that it happens. Everything in the right order, in the right place, uh, that kind of approach. So you might characterize marketing people as being drama club uh, and compliance people as being chess club. And different neurotypes will will be drawn towards working in in those different areas where i have found it useful is in thinking um about about two things you know one is as a non-exec you want to be non-exec uh, your role is to be non-exec not to micromanage if you're presented with loads and loads of numbers and we're going to teach you about this so that you understand it and agree with us that's chess club that's giving you all the detail so that you then know as much or nearly as much as the executive uh, and can ask those detailed kind of questions. The question I often ask is, okay, give me the drama club on this. You know, what's, what's the story? What are we trying to achieve? What's the purpose of this? Um, and give me that overview. And then if I need to know the moves, I, I'll ask about the moves. But actually, I don't normally need to, you know, you'll always know the moves better than me. And it's not about me knowing it more than you or less than you. Um, that's not being, having a different role and a different perspective. The whole point is to, is to have that, that different perspective. So for any individual task, it's kind of making sure that there's been enough drama club around, you know, actuaries are very good at doing detailed models on analysis but if you don't know why you're doing it, you can actually make something fundamentally wrong and it won't add up. It won't fit with the other bits, the other characters that are being used or the people that are actually using the analysis. 
So that's on sort of task by task. Have you involved both sides of thinking about, about this? Um, and also in every phase of a business, um, and I, I always used to promise my team at BP a year of consolidation, which would be kind of been the, the chess club. Uh, you know, actually, we just we just need to batten down and make sure that our our processes are really good, that we're we're churning out the the right reports. Uh, again, that's that's kind of chess club activity, and there are people uh, and pension fund administration is absolutely you know, most most of the time. It's just making sure you get the numbers right because there is a right answer and a wrong answer. Dealing with with pensioners on the phone is much more about empathy, giving them the bigger picture. If you haven't got the answer yet, giving them the the story about well, this is this is how long it's going to take, and we'll keep you posted. And that. So in pensioners admin, you tended to find that people would forget about that drama club bit. Actually, people get worried when they don't hear something. So just keep them full, even if you've got nothing to tell them. Oh, but I want to wait until I've got 20 out of 10 or 11 out of 10. This It's absolutely perfect. And then I'll show you. No, 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 don't. Eight out of 10 is the new 10 out of 10. Just just tell me how it's going. And I'll do see any problems. That's the that's the drama club overlay. So there will be different phases. Where in a startup, you'll have much more of the drama club because you'll need to bring everybody in and sell the idea and uh Everybody comes along with you. That vision is really important. But then you need to make sure you don't leave the chess club behind. So if you think about books like Thinking Fast and Slow, it's it's normally so in behavioral finances, it's about the the innovators who get ahead of themselves, the overconfident chief executives. It is the drama club not bringing the chess club with them or not bringing that sort of chess club element of thinking with them so that they haven't got the right levels of compliance, data, accounting, all of that stuff that you have to do to be a robust business has kind of got left behind. Mm-hmm. And and you'll see, it's a bit like if I, uh, I look at my career, I went through phases of deep specialists and then generalizing and then moving over to another area of specialism and then generalizing and then moving over to another area of specialism and generalizing and finding something shiny over here that I wanted to do, you know, all of that. You, you, you go through phases in a business of actually needing to make sure that one side of it is caught up with the other, uh, or you need to invest in, you know, in an asset, growing asset manager, you need to invest in the compliance side of it, the system side of it, the reporting side of it. Otherwise you can't scale up and then you can grow. So it's, which is, again, it's a more drama club. What's, what's going on out there? What's the big picture that we can play into? Yeah, it's really, really interesting because it's making me think about, you know, we, often there's this narrative around, you know, the founder of the company can't be the long-term uh, person for for the company. It, you know, sort of the way you've just broken that down is that, you know, they often have the idea, they often have the vision, they often, you know, sell that to a number of people to get funding, to get it, you know, off the ground. But they haven't then necessarily got the cognition to think about well, you know, what's the system, what's the process, what's what needs to be in place to bring everyone with me, and that's the sort of breaking point um, in a in a growth of a business. Yeah, and I, I think I suppose my experience at BP more than anything. So I, I saw the end of John Brown, all of Tony Hayward, and the beginning of 
um, Bob Dudley. Um, you know, Bob was in in uh, Russia at some you know hidden away in Russia. I think when I started at BP, what, what my main learning from that was you needed the right chief executive at the right time. That's what I felt at the time, and when I've been on boards since, pretty much every board that I've been on has gone through a change of chief executive, and the role of the chair, I think, is to is to do that sort of yin and yang with the chief executive so that if they have got preferences of doing things one way, that you make sure they've got people around them who can do the other stuff. You know, I'm having been a a chief executive that did it three days a week at, at the BP Pension Fund. I'm a firm believer that the chief executive doesn't have to do everything that most chief executives think they have to do. Um, and that having a chief of staff, a deputy, the right team is actually really important. But equally, knowing your not just your strengths and weaknesses, but what your preferences are. Because everybody around you knows whether you like doing something or not. Uh, and if, you're, if you prefer operating in a, in a chess club mode, and it, it's something that's, that's really interesting in, in the Air Force because the chief changes very regularly, very frequently. And so you're always thinking about, well, what's, what's the chief good at? And have they got the right people around them to put, put, that, put that together? And I think you can, even if you don't enjoy flexing, um, and I speak as somebody who I, I would regard myself as being on the edge in so many ways between the chess club and the drama club, if you, if you don't enjoy one side of it or you find it exhausting, then make sure you've got the right people around you. So I, I think you don't have to change the chief executive, but the chief executive might need to flex more than we might have wanted them to in the past. Mm-hmm. That 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 being a being a flexible leader is is really important. And how do you think that happens? You know, because we're all so conditioned to think in certain ways. We've you know, we talked about the education system really shaping that way that you are in life, but also your family, your background, you know, that shaping. How how do you see people sort of break free of the shackles of their <laughs> current conditioning? Yeah, well I think some of the things like Myers Briggs and like Colour Wheel, or, you know, all of that is is helpful in you getting to know yourself a bit better and getting to know what your preferences are, how you behave in stress, all of that. But the, the reason I I finding chess club drama club so compelling as a as a narrative, in apart from the fact that it just makes people smile is that it's simpler than that. And it's about, it's about thinking about the people around you and what are the strengths in the people around you that you can draw on. It's that, that pause for thought and that reflectiveness, which I think is important in all leaders. Sometimes it comes from not getting on with people or, you know, finding people difficult to relate to. And that could be because they're they're kind of they're from the other club, and they they really don't don't think in that way. I think part of my success over time has been being able to to shift between those clubs. I can be an actor is actuary if I need to be an actor is actuary. 
I can go up on stage and uh, make people laugh and be a real drama club to get an idea across. I can do both of those. I say I don't always do the right one at the right time, but actually practicing, deliberately practicing both of those, I think is, is very helpful. Or just knowing when you're not in your element and getting, getting more help, whether that's other people around you, that's, that's how people can, can learn that. But I think one of the most important things I learned was how important as a, as a team leader it is. And, and if you're aspiring to be an inclusive team leader, which obviously I think everybody should be to get the best out of their teams, is to vocalise your thought processes and be open about it. And so I mean, one of the things I discovered was even though there might be incontrovertible chess club logic about my proposed route forward and why I was asking my team to do the things I was asking them to do, actually there may be other factors, probably more drama club factors about personalities and baggage and politics in an organisation or with stakeholders that if I talked people through my logic, they'd say, mm, yeah, but so-and-so doesn't like that. That's, that word will just set them off and, you know, a bit of baggage that's five years old and we just don't need that. That's just not helpful. And faced with presenting something and saying, please, can you do this? You know, ask them really nicely, but they're not really being bought into it. You, you, you risk some passive resistance, and that is the one thing that winds me up in my life, is, is people saying, yeah, I'll do that, and they don't. So if you've, if you've gone through that process of saying, this is why I think we should do what we should do, and this is the story, and these are the characters, and this is how you do this, and you do that, and we'll all put it together, and da-da-da-da. First night nerves, but yeah, the show must go on. In that way, they all understand why their role is their role and what their purpose is in, in delivering on that which can be really helpful in then drawing out those contributions that make it a more, more resilient path to follow. I mean, one of the things we talked about a lot on this, on this podcast is the, the invisible nature of people's thinking. And that, um, you know, we, we as leaders, we as human beings, we have our own thought processes. And quite often they're just happening. We don't, we don't yeah. know what they are. Um, until we start vocalising and, and hearing them, you know, and it's it's that moment of hearing yourself say, and you're like, really? Do I think that? Yeah. And then being able to draw that out of others is is such an important skill as a leader. Yeah, I think one of my one of my favourite bosses, because he made me laugh so much, um, was a guy who he would deliberately argue with you, and and, and I know I'm not classically trained, so. I don't know. Um, I know there are, there are Greek ways of saying this is how we learn is by arguing. Uh, I ascribe just the fact that he was a big rugby fan and you know, it was a bit of a let's have a scrum about this. And as soon as I realised that he wasn't arguing with me because he disagreed with me, but he was arguing with me because he was rounding out his thinking, it was fine and it was a great game, you know, it was chess club rather than drama club. It was, okay, I'm helping, helping you understand these things. He also used to set two people on the same task and see what different ideas you came out. Of course, you'd find out the other person was doing it and you'd think, why is he doing that? 
that's really irritating. What a waste of energy. But I actually was looking at how different people did, did things differently, again, to make his own thinking richer on, on the subject. But yeah, I, I do think it's a danger of, uh, I'm a big fan of hybrid working, but I do think it's it's more difficult to think aloud in front of a camera, and so and to to think aloud when you're taking turns. Whereas in a room, one of the one of the three D and smell vision stuff that you get is is how people are reacting. So if I was going through my this is where da 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 da, da I suspect that. If you did that on Teams and you were waiting for people to put their hands up or write a comment in the chat, you'd get less feedback than you would by just sensing that somebody's somebody's got a bit of a doubt about this, that you then need to encourage them to bring out. They might just zone out. Again, it's a bit of a passive resistance kind of thing. They'll start doing their emails rather than you know, Sally's off on one again. Whereas rather, you know, I need you to help me here, guys. And I will, you know, on the screen, I might come across as being super confident and da da da. da this route forward, off we go. Um, whereas I think in the room, face to face, sipping a cup of tea, it just feels different and more tentative. And so you can get more out of people that way. Yeah, and it's interesting, isn't it? Because it's, it, for me, it's a question of are we just socially conditioned? We've lived our lives being together. And so, you know, we just, become used to that and it's sort of like this new normal of being on teams being on screens you know how do we start to unlearn everything that we've learned start to learn how how do you do that for a screen how do you yeah, yeah. how do you start to pick up on those things how do you start to um, notice them which is a you know it's a it's a big question for humanity because it sort of looks like we're not going back to Everybody yeah, yeah. all the time. So. And what's really interesting, so it was a, a session that um, Dr. Hannah Critchlow was running recently from, from Cambridge, and she, she was referring to some research where, and it was about teams and how teams work together. You know, it, teams that sing together, run together, you know, do, do something together where their, their brains, basically their brain activity gets synchronised and rhythmed in the same rhythm. That happens when you're in person, but didn't used to happen when we were just doing stuff virtually, but it's starting to happen now we're doing stuff virtually. Yeah. So that's a, how interesting is our brain and how, how might we be able to do that? Yeah. But I think the, the challenge, of course, is you've got, you've got a group of people who were successful at doing it the old way. So we'll have a natural preference and probably a strength at doing it that way and maybe less good at it that way. I found lockdown amazing in terms of, I think it's built my confidence because I quite like being in a board meeting from my own environment, which makes me feel more comfortable and more confident. And I'm quite good with the technology. So I am good at remembering to take the mute off. I'm good at typing comments in the chat and putting my hand up, which I think gave me more of a voice that I would otherwise have had. It could just be the passage of time. I've been being a non-exec for nine years now. Da, 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 da. But I found when I was then back in the boardroom in real life, I think I was behaving differently and more confidently, having had that, that time virtual. But yeah, how it changes us and how we, 
I think we're really just in the in the foothills of working out how to how to do things better, how to how to be more directive about what things are best done face to face and not, and kind of what that means for the the softer things around what it means to work for an organization, about that sense of community, that sense of attachment to the area in which you're working, and all of that stuff is just we're just beginning to explore that. I don't think we'll go back to exactly the way it was. And I'm quite glad about that because I think it is more accommodating for people who who don't find going into the office the optimal way or for them to contribute. But we've still got a long way to go before we, we're kind of settled in that. And I find that exciting rather than uh, challenging or worrying. Yeah, well... On that exciting note, <laughs> we should probably um, end our conversation there. But I feel like we've got loads more we could discuss. So maybe you'll come back uh, at another time. And, uh, I'd be delighted. Do it yeah. again. Yeah. Thank you so much, Ali. Pleasure. What a fascinating conversation with Sally. She really has been a pioneer in her field and helped people to re- recognise those differences that exist within all of us. Some reflections at the end of the conversation. Can you identify yourself as having a bias for either chess club or drama club? And what does that do for you? I notice in myself, there are times when I really want to tell the story and understand all of the actors. And then other times where a process is needed or something needs to come together in the strategy. Being able to traverse those two operating centres has been really helpful for me in working with lots of different leaders. How about those in your organisation? Can you identify those people that really just want to tell the story and those that want to know the next move and what the process is going to be? Can you see the value in both? What does it help you to do in your organisation? And do you have one or more weighted in the organisation? And what might that mean? If you've enjoyed this episode of Generative Leaders, please go ahead and share it with others. I look forward to seeing you next time on Generative Leaders.